Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Robert Eisen. He's a professor of religion and Judaic studies at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And the focus of his most recent research is approaches to peace and violence in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And his other areas of interest include comparative religion, uh, Jewish philosophy, and Jewish biblical interpretation. He's also the author of six books, which I won't state all the names to because it'll get long. I just want to welcome you, Robert. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah, if you would tell me a little bit about your history, what got you interested in the topics you work on? And then I want to ask you what you're working on right now. Oh, okay. Well, uh, let's see. I mean, I actually began uh, my undergraduate career as a pre-med. You know, a lot of Jewish boys in the 1980s, I was, uh, you know, supposed to go to medical school and uh, settle into a comfortable life as a doctor. But uh, something funny, you know, something funny happened on the way to medical school. I ended up uh, getting interested in religion. And the way that came about was that I was, uh, while completing my pre-med requirements, I, um, I also was majoring in history. And uh, the kind of history I studied was intellectual history, which is history that is focused on ideas, intellectual movements. And um, that brought me into philosophy, into religion. And by the time I was done as an undergraduate, I decided that I really wanted to do a PhD in religion and become, and become an academic in that field. And uh, my specialty was Judaism. That's that's kind of the long and short of how I got to to this to you know, to the academic profession. And what are you what are you studying today? What is all this culminated in? Well, you know, it's a hard question to answer. I study a lot of different things, but I guess um, as you mentioned in your introduction, one of the things that interests me most is uh, maybe the thing that really does interest me most is uh, the relationship between religion on the one hand and peace and violence on the other hand. Uh, given that there are so many conflicts in the world that are you know, based on 
religious differences. Uh, this is something that I've been studying for, for many years uh, with the hope of you know, getting insight uh, into why religions are in conflict and also how religions can make peace with each other. Well, I mean, I know a lot of people want to blame religions as the source of most or all conflicts, but it seems like there's political induced division, which causes plenty of conflict, political conflict, religious conflict, etc. So what share of conflict do you believe religion actually has? Well, you know, I think you've, in a way you've already answered my question with a very astute insight, which is that religion is just, it's religion is one form of, of social identity, one form of group identity. Uh, politics, which you mentioned in your question, uh, is another form of group identity. And, and the two are often very deeply intertwined. You often cannot separate different forms of identity, political identity, ethnic identity, which you, you didn't mention, uh, and religious identity. They often coalesce with each other and are very difficult to separate. So I would have a very hard time separating those those things. I think religion and politics, religion and, and, and ethnicity are often so intertwined with each other that it's hard to, to take them apart. Yeah, for some reason, it seems like two groups of peoples that are incredibly similar in, you know, I mean, most ways you can make the comparison are the ones that tend to fight the most, you know, Arabs and Israelis. And in Africa, you know, like, let's say the Hutus and the Tutsis. And do you think that's a, an accurate generalization? Or are there other factors that seem to cause those, those conflicts where two peoples are incredibly similar yet different? Well, look, religions are often going to be in conflict with each other because so much is at stake, right? Religion is what defines people's identity in a very personal way. Also, the kind of religious allegiance you have, you know, these are that has ramifications for your fate in this life, your fate in the afterlife, at least according to those who are inside uh, the religion and believe in that religion. So religion is a very sensitive issue. But you're right that sometimes the closer two groups are, the, the more tenser relationship they have with each other, right? And, um, you know, this is actually something that Freud pointed out a long time ago, that uh, people who are often similar to each other have the greatest conflict. Uh, because that's where, you know, if somebody is totally different from you, you can write them off. But when they're in the same ballpark, believe, say, in the same God, and have a kind of general idea about the same sort of way of life, the same type of ethics, then, you know, the differences become very noticeable. And people throughout history have often been very irritated at those who are, are closer to them in their religious beliefs and practices than those who are, you know, different from them. If you look at, let's say, Judaism, you know, is there more intense arguments and fighting between, you know, like Hasidic, Orthodox, Reformed, etc.? Uh, versus, you know, Judaism versus Christianity. And, you know, like within Christianity, is there more argument and division amongst denominations? No, I think it's very across hard. Religions? Yeah, I, I think it's very hard to put, to quantify these things. Is there more conflict? Is there less conflict? It depends tremendously on the circumstances. And, you know, you'd have to point to very specific examples to see uh, how that might work. I, I mean, I suspect you wouldn't necessarily see any any definable pattern. But I think, again, you're right that to bring in what is called intra-religious conflict, that often the most difficult conflicts are between groups within the same religion. And so some of the most bitter divisions that Jews have, you know, are not with Muslims, but actually between Jews. I, I think Islam, you know, provides a, a very good example of the problem. You know, Shiites and Sunnis to a first approximation from the outs for the outside of there, they're all Muslims. And yet 
some of the most violent conflicts that you see in the world today, where there's the greatest amount of bloodshed in places like Yemen, to name just one to name just one place, uh, you know, it's between Shiites and Muslims, between Muslims. So I think this problem of intra-religious violence is is, is very serious uh, and is often just as serious as the violence that you see between between religions. Yeah, and you said you're looking at the dichotomy of, you know, peace versus violence in religion. So when there is violence in religion, is it different than when there's violence because of ethnic differences or political differences, or is it all the same it's just a different manifestation of it. Again, it, you know, it, I don't know if anybody has come up with a metric that would be able to answer that question. You know, you, you know, how do you measure how serious violence is? All I can tell you is that, you know, when you look at the broad picture, what you see is that both of them can be pretty horrific. You know, millions of people have died throughout the centuries in Europe because of religious differences. So, for instance, the, the wars between Protestants and Catholics, you know, in the 1500s and the 1600s claimed millions of lives, you know. So there you have a conflict, actually a very good example of, of religious differences within Christianity. But to a first approximation, th- that's a conf- those were conflicts based on religion. But then, of course, you look at nationalistic conflicts, conflicts between nations, and, uh, you know, you can, you can point to World War II. World War I, actually World War I and World War II, both world wars were conflicts that were, weren't fought over religion. They were fought over nationalism. And so, you know, and there you have, again, tens of millions of people dying. So I think it's very hard to, I think it's very hard to quantify. I don't personally take a lot of interest in comparing them because the basic problem here is how do you get people past their group identities, Um, whether they're identifying with nations or whether they're identifying with religions. To me, both are very, both are very potent forms of identity that can result in horrific violence. Yeah, I, I remember seeing something about, you know, um, marriage counselors and relationships and the association, I don't know, whatever it was, they characterized that there are certain elements in a relationship that's more likely that, you know, a divorce will be a definite thing, like disgust and repulsion and et cetera. So I wonder if in evaluating religious conflicts, if there are certain elements that would would tell you, like, this conflict is not going to be resolved versus ones that are resolved. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. You know, my from my study of religion, I think that's extremely difficult to predict. You know, it, it, when you when you have when you have a marriage and you have two people, you have a fairly controlled situation in terms of the uh, maybe that's not the right word, but you have a, you have a delimited situation. You have two people, but when you have entire religious communities that are at war with each other, and then you add to that all of the different political factors and international factors that go into that kind of conflict. It is very difficult to predict how to solve the conflict, very difficult to to predict when it'll break out, very difficult to predict how it will be solved. And you have to kind of 
go, you know, for those of us who've been involved in interreligious dialogue and have been trying to solve some of these religious conflicts in the world, you know, the situation changes from day to day because there are just so many factors involved that are so unpredictable. And, and a hopeless conflict one day suddenly becomes a solvable conflict the next day. A solvable conflict one day becomes a hopeless conflict the next day. It's very unpredictable when you're dealing with so many factors that usually come into play in a major conflict uh, of the kind that you of the kinds that you have in the world between religions. Well, what have you learned that's useful? You know, a heuristic or a way of looking at these conflicts. You know, in your study, which it sounds like you've done quite a bit. You know, what what things have jumped out at you as being useful? Well, look, I think uh, first of all, I think uh, I, I don't want to. Um, have elevated expectations here. I think that it's very difficult to solve religious conflicts, very difficult to solve political conflicts. Um, International conflicts of any kind are difficult to solve. But if I had to tell you what I think might make a difference, what has made a difference, at least in my experience, is when people simply get to know each other. I know that it sounds simplistic and it might even sound too idealistic, but um, I've had remarkable interactions with uh, Muslim and Christian colleagues, uh, colleagues in various religions. And uh, what I've discovered is that when you get people together in a room and you get to know each other on a personal basis, you begin to understand a lot more about the other than you ever imagined. Uh, you also see the other as human. And so a lot of what I do in my work is I, I engage in interpersonal dialogue with in other faith, with other with religious leaders in other faith communities, with the hope that we can forge these. Uh, relationships that can have an effect. The problem, of course, is expanding that to a, uh, you know, on a, on a, on a large scale, you know, I mean, uh, great, I get along with this Muslim leader, and we have an understanding, but can we bring that understanding to bear on uh, respective communities? That's very difficult to do. But look, you know, I figure, what's the choice? Just let everybody kill each other? No, I'm going to do whatever I can to make the world a better place. What things have made you happy and delighted you versus things that have been a disappointment to you in your studies? Well, look, I think I, I think it comes back to some of the things that we've been talking about. What I've, what's delighted me is that every religious tradition has the imperative. Every major religious tradition, let me put it that way, there, there are hundreds, if not thousands of religious traditions, but the major religious traditions all speak about loving other human beings. They all do. They all have that strand in them. And so that's the thing that, of course, moves me. You know, when I read Confucius or I read, uh, you know, about the, the uh, traditions of the Buddha and, and they speak a language that is very similar to that of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible who speak about, you know, who speak about loving one's neighbor, that moves me. What disturbs me? Well, it's the flip side. It's the fact that every religion has this potential to say that my religion is better than yours and that, uh, and that uh, you know, we should, we should therefore go to war in order that our religion be, be the premier religion in the world. So I think, I think a lot of you know, what I like and dislike revolves around the things that we've talked about. I love when religion promotes peaceful ideals. I, I love when it produces wonderful figures, saintly figures like uh, Martin Luther King, you know, who's a devout Christian, or Mahatma Gandhi, who was uh, an Indian figure who was influenced by Hinduism and Buddhism and, and various other uh, Indian religions. I, you know, the, those figures I, I admire. And then I'm very unhappy when I, you know, when I come across the opposite, when I come across religious figures who, who ferment violence, you know, the Osama bin Ladens of, of the world, that, that makes me very unhappy. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
what kind of sense has it given you about the world by looking at comparative religion for a while? I mean, you know, I guess you're answering it in part by the answer you just gave, but do you feel like it's made you happier and yet more concerned or do you feel like you have a better sense of the world by doing this or you know, what is yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that got me involved in religion in the first place was this feeling that religion was a reflection, was, was a reflection of everything human. I, I don't know if there's a subject you can study that is a better reflection of everything that human beings are thinking about or feeling than, than studying religion. It's a window into the human mind, both conscious and unconscious, unlike any other subject. It's a, it's a window into what is good in humanity and what is bad in humanity. And so I love that journey. I, I, I love the complexity. I love understanding, finding out uh, religions as a way of understanding the complexity of human beings. We're very complex creatures, and religion is a wonderful reflection of all that complexity. What is your thought of people that, you know, say we don't need religion, we don't need God, versus other cultures or families or, you know, groupings that say they do and they embrace it? What have you noticed the difference? Well, you know, I don't, uh, you know, when it comes to people who don't who don't want to be religious or don't have any religious instinct, I think from a personal standpoint, I'm a, I'm a little bit at a loss. But I mean, let me sharpen that up. You know, there are two kinds of people you can encounter. You can encounter people who say, I don't want to have anything to do with institutional religion. Right? I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be, a, you know, and go to a church. I don't want to be a Jew and go to a synagogue. Uh, but they could still be very religious. And those people, I, of course, I can relate to because I don't think you have to be part of an institutional religion to have a, a meaningful religious life. Uh, then there are those who really are completely secular. They see no God in the world. They see nothing in the world that, that suggests that there's an alternative reality, that there's a metaphysical world. That I must admit, I have a harder time relating to, just from a personal standpoint. But let me add one thing, and that is that some of the most wonderful people I have met in my life have been people in that last category. Some people who have absolutely no interest in religion have also been people of great, of great ethical character extremely moral people, extremely loving people. And so I, you know, and for that reason, I, I, I won't pass judgment on them at all. And in fact, if I do, I'll say that they're wonderful people. You know, the fact that they don't, that they're not religious, well, that's something I have a hard time relating to. So, you know, at least, from, you know, from my personal standpoint, I, I, I don't know whether, whether, whether someone's religiosity is a reflection of how well I can relate to, at least in terms of what okay. they can contribute to the world. All right. No, that makes sense. So what are some of the questions that you're looking at at this moment? You know, most recently, what's what's your focus? Well, gee, there are a lot of things. You know, in recent years, I've actually gotten interested in some other issues. I've been um, in my studies in comparative religion have gotten me interested in um, just recently in comparing Judaism and Chinese religion, which is something that a lot of scholars have not really looked at. I've also just completed a study, a book that I'm uh, hoping will be published soon on why Jews have been, have done so well in the modern world, why they've been a successful minority. So these are some of the, uh, the issues that I've been talking about. I think you might have seen some of this in my, that bio of, of mine that, that you have. Oh, any insights yet into any of these questions or, you know, what, which one do you feel like you're starting to gain an understanding of? Well, the one on Jews and, and, uh, and their success in the modern world has been something I've done a lot of thinking about. And look, maybe, I, you know, I, I guess, well, let, let me just explain a little bit about what the, what the project is about, and that is that, you know, Jews have actually done very well in the modern world, despite anti-Semitism, despite the Holocaust. If you look at uh, the statistics of Jewish 
accomplishments in the economic sphere, the intellectual sphere, the sphere of the arts, you know, all those areas that we normally use to measure success, Jews have done very well in the modern world. And the question has been why? I don't know if it's ever really been answered. And uh, I, I want to emphasize, strongly emphasize, that uh, my purpose here was, is not to show that Jews are somehow better than everyone else, or that Judaism is somehow a better way of life than other ways of life. And in fact, quite the contrary. The point of the book was really to see if there was wisdom that I could share with everyone to say, hey, look, you know, Jews have done well. Maybe we can learn something from them. So the book focused on that. And, and the, basic, the basic thesis is a rather, rather simple one, and that is that what allowed Jews to survive centuries of persecution kind of prepared them well for thriving once they were given their rights in the modern world. You know, there were centuries of, of, of Jewish hardship, living often living under hostile regimes and hostile uh, rulers, uh, Muslims and Christians who really wanted them to become, well, you know, Muslims or Christians. Jews were able to weather that over the centuries and as a result uh, became very adaptable, very dynamic in, in the way that they dealt with the world around them. And that prepared them then for uh, when they were when they entered the modern world and were given their rights and were made citizens of European countries, the United States. They they then were kind of prepared by all that history to do to do well. And so I you know I'm I, writing this book in order to in order to appeal to I think what is something everyone will will, will relate to and understand, uh, which is that you know there's hope for everyone. You know that. Uh, you can survive hundred if, if the Jews can survive hundreds of years of uh, hardship and succeed nonetheless. Well, so can so can the rest of us. You know, so can everyone. You know, it's a kind of testimony hmm. to the human spirit, the strength of the human spirit. Well, it seems like I guess within you know the Jewish culture, like you had the parents that like you said in the very beginning. You know, the expectation is you'll be a doctor or a lawyer, or that kind of stuff. I know in other cultures too, like you know, uh, people from India and Pakistan. You know, there's also a, a heavy pressure also to succeed and. I guess maybe the entire culture of Judaism is what has pushed Jews, plus the persecution and all that, to you know to succeed because they've been under pressure to either succeed or I guess give in and be uh, right be brutalized. Yeah. yeah, the way I like to put it is that what caused them to to survive through hundreds of years of persecution uh, helped them thrive when they when they entered the modern period. Makes sense. Well, very good. Going forward, what to, I don't know what. Any seeds you want to plant in listeners' minds? Anything that uh, you know you'd like them to think about based on our discussion? I don't know. I think we've I think we've actually covered a fair amount of good territory here. Um, I'd certainly, you know, I, I think you know what I can do is is reiterate and maybe just expand a little bit on maybe a couple of points I said earlier. I think that those people who are already you know who already know something about religion, you know, keep studying it, studying it. Those are those out there who are skeptical about religion and kind of feel that it's a waste of time or that it's always violent and it's always doing bad things, you know, I ask you to, I ask you to reconsider and, and to rethink your position and to try and, and to study religion. Because as I said, religion, what you find is that religion is far more complicated, far less simplistic than you might imagine. It, it, it is a reflection of everything that is in the human psyche. And so I think there's great benefit to, to studying religion. You know, I also think that on the, so that's on the intellectual level. On the practical level, uh, look, I mean, I'd like to leave the world a better place than when I found it, you know. And um, the only way that's going to happen is that if all of us get together, not just me, I mean, I'm only one guy. But if we all get together and try to try to make it a better place. And, and so, you know, if there's a message that I'd like to leave listeners out there with, it's that, if you do belong to a religious community, 
Try to find a way to reach out to the community that you're in conflict with, or try to reach out to the community you're not in conflict with. Try to foster in some way or another a a better understanding between religions so that you can bring out what is best in religion, which at its best is a beautiful thing, and and at its worst is a horrific. Well, very good. Barbara, thanks so much for coming. Uh, Last question, where can people find out more about your work? And, you know, if they're going to start looking at all the things you talk about, is there a particular book? Or should they start with your website? Like, where do you? Well, I, you know, I think if you just Google my name at George Washington, Robert Eisen, E I S E N, at George Washington University, what you'll find is my bio, which is on the Department of Religion website uh, at GW, and um, you know, gives a full, you know, pretty full description of what I've written about and the books that I've written. You can look them up on Amazon. I've written, as I said, you know, we've covered one aspect of, of what I do, maybe the major aspect, but I've. Have a lot of different interests. I've written books on a lot of different things, and um, it's all there. And maybe I'll just get in one more little plug here, and that is that I'm also, besides being an academic, I'm also a musician, singer, songwriter. And mm. uh, on my webpage, uh, at Department of Religion, you'll see some links to YouTube and to Spotify where you can listen to my music. Because when I'm not uh, writing books about religion, I'm playing guitar, singing, and doing and 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 writing songs in the country pop and folk rock mode. So I'd love, I'd love the listeners out there to give my music a listen. Oh, very cool. Well, excellent. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming. It's been a really good call. I appreciate it. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for taking an interest in my work. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.